Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Good morning. I'm so glad to be with you. If I haven't yet had the chance to meet you, my name's Tom Richter, and I'm part of the City on a Hill extended family, I guess you could say. So I'm a pastor in Queens. Our service meets at night, and so I'm able to be here. If you're new to City on a Hill, welcome. There is uh, a lot going on, a lot to get plugged into. And if you're new to church in general, I'll just tell you, the first Sunday after Labor Day, in every church across America, in mine and all of them, is like a rejuvenation, like a re- I don't know why, but it's just sort of the fall kicks off a lot of new things as the school year starts. And so now's the time to get jumped. In fact, we made up a holiday next Sunday. We're passing out postcards and everything. It's called National Back to Church Sunday. You guys do it here too, right? It's the idea. Hey, you know what? The summer, it's been crazy. Let's get back involved. So it feels like, wow, that was a lot going on. It's because there is a lot going on. And they're trying to make it easy for you to plug into. So grab a bulletin. Go on the website. The best thing is to get somebody's cell phone number who's here and say, hey, what are those things again? What what was Ignite? Why do I want to set my kids on fire? What's Ignite? You know, um, figure out some of those things and uh, stay after it. It's not, you know, you you don't always get stuff. It's a little chaotic when you go someplace for the the first time. I know I um, uh, crossed that famous milestone in my own life on Thursday. My five-year-old Katie began school. Yeah, dropped off kindergarten. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, and you guys know, yeah, many of you have been there, and um, it's chaos. It's just a circus. It is, it, is, it is a dumpster fire trying to figure out, it's a hot mess, like, wh- where am I supposed to go, whatever. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded, that's how somebody feels when they come to church for the first time. I don't know all the things you know. I don't speak your language. So he's like, just go to the coordinator's office. <laughs> What's a coordinator? Like, office I know, you know? So difficult, so hard. You know what I longed to see? It was just a friendly face who's like, Hey, welcome. You know what? Stick with me for a minute. Let me show you the ropes, you know? And uh, because it's kindergarten, I have to go back and try it again, like even if I'm bad at it. But people come to church for the first time who are like, I, I didn't get it. They don't have to come back and try it again. You know, it's not obligate. There's no, God doesn't have like a truancy officer. Uh, haven't been there in a while. You know, where you been? Um, what can we do to make it easy? You know, big signs, big faces. People, don't, don't, don't assume. Assume people are very intelligent. Always assume people are intelligent. But assume they're church illiterate, you know, or assume they're biblically illiterate, right? And that's okay. Um, and, uh, and so with all of us intelligent uh, people here today, I'm going to continue in Genesis, what I, what I started a couple weeks ago. And I really feel like the Lord sort of shifted gears last week. And I happened to have that, like, Psalm 103 sermon with me. And he was talking about, bless the Lord, we preach on bless the Lord. Today, I only brought one sermon. So I was like, we're not having that again, you know. Uh, <laughs> But seriously, uh, the, um, the Lord has been speaking to me through Genesis. I've taken my church through Genesis, so I'm trying to continue. We started in the story of Jacob, and uh, in the interest of time, I just want to jump right into the scriptures. Let's just jump right in. Let's talk about Genesis chapter 28. So will you turn there to Genesis chapter 28, and we're going to start in verse 10. Genesis chapter 28 and verse 10. I'll give you a little bit of background for those of you who might not have been here. It's a pretty famous story. Genesis has 50 chapters. And really the first uh, 11 or 12 chapters deal with kind of the, the primeval history. And then after that, we're really dealing with one particular family. And then we hone in not just on one family, but on one man, Jacob. And really the rest of, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. He has these 12 sons. That's why if you've ever heard of the 12 
tribes of Israel, they're just talking about the 12 sons of this dude, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. It's the same person. So Israel, before, long before it was a nation or a people group, Israel's just a person, right? Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. So if I call, throughout this sermon, if I call Israel Jacob, or if I call Jacob Israel, just understand, I'm, I'm talking about the, the same person, you know? You, you can't always keep it straight. Uh, Sean, Puppy Combs, Pete Diddy, Puff Daddy, it's the same guy. It's the same thing, Israel, Jacob. So when you hear 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, you're just talking about the 12 sons of this dude, Israel. It just gets his name changed. Um, the, the whole rest of the book of Genesis is about Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and what happens to these 12 sons and how they eventually end up in Egypt. And then, of course, Exodus kicks off how we get out of Egypt and so forth. But that, that's what Genesis is about. So a couple weeks ago when I was here, whenever it was, Jacob steals his father's blessing. Jacob, we talked about, is the deceiver. I picked on Esau, and the point of the sermon was, don't sell your birthright for a pot of lentils, right? Don't, don't, when you sin, you're sacrificing what you could have in the future for, to fulfill some appetite now. And I picked on Esau, but I made it very clear that by no means was Jacob innocent. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a, 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 a conniver, and so this deceptive, I'm really, he was a punk. Your brother comes in starving. Give me some of that delicious stew. Sell me your birthright, right? Who does that? So Jacob had, was, was full of sin. If you read the book of Genesis, you start to realize, well, this person looks heroic at first, but they've got massive flaws. And this person isn't the hero, and this person isn't the hero. The only hero in the book of Genesis turns out to be God. The only one really faithful in the book of Genesis is God. So now that... These guys have grown up. Esau is seething. Esau and Jacob, of course, I mean, stole, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, stole their dad Isaac. Yeah, Jacob and Esau. Jacob stole uh, their father's blessing, and there's great bitterness. The, the family is just a, it's a, it's a soap opera, I mean, uh, of drama and intrigue. And Jacob leaves, and he, he's out of here. His mom gives him one last advice. Listen, your brother's going to kill you. Your dad is all furious. Listen, just go and try to find a Canaanite wife. Start over and, and build your own family this way. So here we, we pick up the scene in, in Genesis 28. Look at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place and put it there at his head and lay down in that place. Now... Um, the, the scene we're going to come up on is a famous scene. It's called Jacob's Ladder. The, he has a vision, the stairway to heaven. I've asked our guitar player, to, if he, would you play? <laughs> <We're, clears throat> but he had, we call it stairway or ladder. We're going to see this dream. Before we get there, I want, I'll divide the sermon. I'll do it quickly. I'm going to move quick, but I'm going to divide the sermon just into three movements. You ready? They're very simple. Before the dream, the dream, his response to the dream, after the dream. Okay? That's where we're going. Just in case you fall asleep halfway through one of these turns and you wake back up, this is where, well, I haven't left you. We're going to talk a little bit before the dream, the dream itself, and then after the dream. It has everything to do with you and me today. And I'll show you. Before the dream. Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so it's not just, uh, uh, the, I mean, it's the word of God. But there's also great literary style, great economy of, of style here. Notice, the, the scripture writers tell us so much in just these two verses. He reached a certain place, spent the night there because the sun had set, took one of the stones, and laid down, right? Actually, just in that one verse, tells us three things. First off, notice, he reached, he reached a certain place and spent the night there. You don't see that too often in the Bible. 
Why? Because stuff had names, and they knew the names of these places, right? Like you would name it. This is Two Rivers Crossing, or, or there would be some, some landmark. You know, this is, this is Mount Haran or whatever. These things all had names. Geography is very important, and, and the Bible writers had names for all these places. So when the Bible says, when Moses writes, he reached somewhere. Right? He reached a certain place. What are they telling you? Jacob was in the middle of nowhere. He was in a nowhere place. It doesn't even get a name. There wasn't even like a tiny, you know, moderately tall pine tree zone. Like there's nothing. He's in the middle of nowhere. That's what it's trying to say. Reach a certain place. On top of that, he uh, uh, not only is in a nowhere place, he has nothing. Now, how do they show you he has nothing? Look at this. He took one, he's, he's really tired, and he took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. My man used a rock for a pillow. Now, who would use out in the wilderness a rock for a pillow? We read this stuff in the Bible. We're like, oh, obviously in ancient times, before there were chiropractors, a rock pillow was a comp. No, it was weird then. It's weird now, right? Why would you use a stone for a pillow? If you're camping, it means you obviously have nothing else, right? Man, if you had an extra pair of socks, wouldn't you like ball them up? And like, think about how many things you would use before you used a stone for a pillow. Do you agree with me? Surely if you had an extra cloak or if you had, certainly if you had a a bunch of camels traveling with you with a whole, a caravan, there'd be enough there. You could maybe even form a little tent. He's got nothing. He's in a nowhere place and he's got nothing. More than just he's got physically nothing, he's got, his life is falling apart. I told you a little bit of the background, but he's got this prophecy that Jacob was going to be, he himself was going to be chosen and blessed. He's seeing none of that. God has not spoken to him, it seems like. Isaac has always favored Esau. Esau, the athletic one, the hunter who can bring home that delicious food that daddy likes. It doesn't take a psychologist to figure out the serious daddy you know, issues, the issues with the father going on in this family. So desperate with his father's love, he dresses up strapping like his brother to, to receive the blessing. It all backfires. Now Esau wants to kill him. He's got no wife, no family, no prospects, no place, nothing but a stone. Rock bottom. What? And then on top of all that, all good literature they do. You know when you read novels or you see movies, when the sun had set. This is classic symbolism, not just for the physical, it's nighttime, but that the sun has set on his life. That now we're in darkness. So he's, got, he's, in, he's in nowhere, he's got nothing, and he's in spiritual darkness. I heard Tim Keller talk about this passage, and I, I love the turn of phrase he used. He says, heaven for Jacob, at this point, heaven was a closed book and a closed door. Closed book and a closed door. The closed book, I can't understand what's happening. The closed door, and God's not giving any answers. You ever go through that? When you go through suffering, when you're in a dark place, when you feel like you're in a nowhere place, and you got nothing and you got nobody, a lot of times people would say, I could go through this suffering if only, what? If only God would explain his plans. See, then I could understand why I'm going through this suffering. Then I could get through it. So we cry out to God and we say, why, God? And we hear nothing but silence. Now what? Now, not only are we in the pain of our suffering, but we feel like just when we need his voice the most, he's silent. That's where Jacob is right now. He's got nothing. He's in a nowhere place. God is a closed book. Heaven is a closed door. On top of all that, in every other generation, Abraham got to meet with God. Isaac got to meet with God. They all got to meet with God. 
he's gotten nothing. And, and he's not going to get it now. God, you can see God talking to Abraham, a pretty righteous guy. But now you think he's going to talk to the lying, cheating, stealing, running away punk Jacob. Uh, it's not going to happen. And do we see anywhere, do we see Jacob even crying out for mercy? It's not like we see Jacob saying, I repent of all this stuff. Look at me. I've hit rock bottom, and now God, speak to me. No, we don't. At this point, he's so burned out, he's not even praying to God. He's, nobody's, he's, nobody's beseeching his mercy. Why am I making such a big deal about this before the dream? Now we transition to the part two, the dream itself. Because in the middle of that, in the middle of a story where you got a man in a nowhere place who's got nothing with no reason in the world to think God would have anything to do with him, that, he's not running toward God, he's running away, right? In that moment, that's where God comes. That's where God comes. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Many of us have this crazy notion that somehow when we get our life right and we begin to turn to God, that's when the, the moment happens. The fact is, the Bible says when we're still in sin, running from God, fighting him off, spitting upon him, that's when he comes and finds us, while we're still in sin. Jacob does not deserve any grace, which is the definition of grace, see? So if you come to the story like this and you're like, this guy doesn't deserve grace, congratulations, you've just hit upon the proper definition of grace. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be a wage, right? Yeah. You say, I can't forgive that person. He doesn't deserve it. You're absolutely correct. You cannot forgive him. Uh, if he deserves it, you can only give him what he earns. If, however, he does not deserve it, then and only then can you actually forgive. It's a really cool verb. Uh, you, you, you can't, if they earn it, you can't do it. You can't, you can't forgive. But if they don't deserve it, now you can forgive, right? That's why when you go to God, you should just really apologize for stuff. You shouldn't apologize with a bunch of justifications. God, I'm sorry I did wrong, but you know how evil they are. God's like, well, then why should I forgive? Why, I, I don't need to forgive that. You obviously have a lot of reasons. God, I'm sorry I hurt that person, but I was so tired. Well, then we're cool. You were tired, right? God, I'm sorry I was disobedient, but Satan just got the victory. Oh, well, if Satan's stronger than you, then it's not your fault. Who are you again? But if you go to God and say, hey, God, I deliberately and willfully sinned against you. I knew what I was doing, and I did it. Forgive me. God's like, now we can talk. See, now you've actually made an apology. Right? By the way, that'll help you in your marriage. The, the hardest thing to do is apologize. With the, the hardest part of that whole apology is the period and knowing where to put it. And here's where it needs to go. I'm sorry. Right there. <laughs> Otherwise, not an apology. Otherwise, you're just giving a bunch of reasons for what you did, what you did. Right? The thing is, you married that person. So they, they like you. They married you. They don't need all your excuses. You don't need theirs. You need to get good at, I'm sorry, and I have no reason other than I deliberately hurt you. Now, will you forgive me? And you need to get good at saying, yes, I will. I can forgive the inexcusable in you because I have a God who has forgiven the inexcusable in me. That'll help you in all kinds of ways. The Bible's so practical. And he dreamed. Oh, and he dreamed. Do you understand? And he dreamed. Sorry, I, I, I transitioned now. No, let's talk about the dream. And he dreamed. Why is that so beautiful? And he dreamed. It means God wasn't done with Jacob even when Jacob was done with God. God shows up, and we see a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him. Three things in the dream I want you to see. Real, real quick, the stairway set on the ground. We, we, we often hear this story told as Jacob, Jacob's ladder. Ladder's a terrible translation for this, because a ladder we think of, first of all, is not that big, and uh, second of all, multiple people wouldn't work on a ladder at the same time. Stairway's much better, and on top of all that, it makes sense culturally. What he saw was something called a ziggurat. 
They were dotted all over. I mean, this would have been the, 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 the religion of the Chaldeans that Abraham was pulled for. A ziggurat was a massive pyramid with the top cut off flat. So the, the God that they were worshiping would be hanging out at the top, and there would be this map. Think about it. The bigger you built the base of the pyramid, the bigger this stairway. And this one is like one he's never seen. It is so massive that its bottom is on the ground, and its top stretches all the way to heaven. So he sees something huge. He sees a ziggurat. Angels, imagine this. It would have been stunning to see thousands of angels. God's angels are doing what? They're going up and down. They're his emissaries. They are on mission. In other words, the business of heaven is being conducted. Even though Jacob thinks heaven is completely silent. The business of heaven is being conducted. Stuff is getting done. Because God's angels are handling it. Everybody understand angels, right? Do we need to harp on this? You guys good? You got to get out of your mind like Charmin, you know, uh, toilet paper commercials. We're good, right? Like we think of angels. I mean, even if you don't think of like the little naked babies, the cherubim or whatever. These angels in scripture. When, <clears throat> you see modern day like uh, TV and stuff and, and there's like touched by an angel and there's these things that angels show up. And maybe I saw an angel and stuff. Let me tell you something. In the Bible, when an angel showed up, <clears throat> no one had to ask, are you an angel? When an angel showed up, what, what, what happened was people would immediately fall to the ground. They would cry out in fear and say, what, are you going to kill us or not? Every time an angel shows up, he has to say, fear not. I know what I do to y'all every time I show up, right? I blow y'all's minds. You think I'm here to kill everybody? Why? Because I am mighty and powerful, and it's because I've been hanging out with God, and he tends to rub off on you, and, uh, and I get it. I got a little bit of that, that reflection going on, and I, listen, I get that. People are like, uh, we're going to die, we're going to die. The sight of angels, sore, afraid, uh, dreadful, oppressive. When they, show up in, uh, when they show up in TV shows, it's like, hi, I'm an angel. Clarence? Like, I didn't, you know, I had no idea. Okay? On a practical note, that really helped me. Like, when I, uh, I had to teach the after school, I got, got to teach the after school program at New Hope when we first started. This was about 10 years ago, and had all these, uh, we, they wanted us to do a Christmas pageant, and I did the Christmas play as best I could, but the trouble is, I had, I had all these guys, and I had all these parts filled, and I didn't have enough parts for the guys, and all that was left was these angels, and they were like, I ain't being an angel. You, you an angel, Mario. Yeah, yeah, he, he'd be a good, hey, shut up, man. Like, they're fighting it out. So I was like, guys, come with me, come with me. I was like, so I told him everything I just told you. I was like, guys, angels in the scripture, they're not these dainty little fairies. These were God's special forces. This is God's, like, SEAL Team 6. And when he wanted stuff done, he got it done. Their eyes are like, you for real? I'm like, I started taking them to scriptures where Joshua, like, bows down. Are you for us or the enemy? Because all he sees is a mighty soldier. And, and, and they're, they're, like, getting into it or whatever. I got my angels. I mean... <laughs> I also got a few letters from parents. Like, it was like the Christmas pageant. The guy comes in with camo. Blessed are you, Mary, among women. He's got the gun sideways. <laughs> oh, Gabriel, what? But uh, I, I believe it was biblically <clears throat> more defensible. But uh, some parents are funny. They don't... Uh, so that's the angels. He sees all these mighty angels. And the Lord, most importantly, sees the Lord. And the Lord says, uh, before I read this, you need to understand, he's utterly friendless. The only friend he ever had, Rebecca, potentially his mom. And she, I mean, potentially the only friend you could say was his mom, Rebecca, and probably never going to see her again. Because if he goes back home, Esau will kill him. So really the only real, I guess, friend who's looking out for him is 
was Rebecca. So he's utterly friendless. He's utterly alone. He has no protection. He's in the wilderness with a rock for a pillow. He's got no protection. And most of all, no inheritance, no home. Look at what the Lord says to him. Can everybody hold that in your mind? I have no friend. I have no inheritance. And I have no home. Look at what God says. I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your offspring the land you're now sleeping on. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. You're going to have a home. Yeah, but I'm alone. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. What Jacob realizes is that he was wrong. Heaven is an open book and an open door. He just couldn't see it. What's the point? <laughs> well, one point is that you imagine this, that, that God Almighty is standing beside him, speaking like a father would have compassion, tenderly talking to his children. One main point of this text is that, is that, that, that though you can't see it, how do I say this? God's silence does not ever mean God's inactivity in your life. That would be a good way to put it. God's silence does ne- never does it equate to God's inactivity. My man Jacob just couldn't see it. But then when he saw it, he goes, I was wrong. I was wrong. I thought heaven as a closed book and a closed door. Completely wrong. He could not see it. You see this uh, uh, in people's lives sometimes, and you don't always get to see it. I cannot explain why sometimes you get to see it and sometimes you don't. Let me explain. When you're going through suffering, there are times, they're often very brief. I'm hoping somebody knows what I'm talking about because it's much easier if you've been through this to understand. But there are times when you're going through suffering and you can't figure out. Every now, it might just be like one night or it might just be this one time in prayer. But it's like briefly the veil was lifted and you got to see, hey, there's more here going on than you can see. And sometimes it drops back, and I, I don't get it. Sometimes you go through suffering for years, and you never even get that. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, okay? But there are times, for whatever reason, when it's almost like God lets you see just a little bit behind the scenes, often for just a moment. God bless you if you get to see that a lot, and you have the kind of perspective where you're like, hey, I'm going through trouble, but God is good. I'm getting to see all the things that he's doing. But you don't always get that. Everybody with me? You always get it. Jacob gets that right here. Another amazing time when it looks like God is silent, but it, it has nothing to do with his activity. Another great one, and it's kind of funny, is 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha and his servant are alone in a town, and they have come to kill him. Not just like send a few hitmen. Armies have amassed against my man Elisha. That's it. They're just looking to kill Elisha. And the servant's like, seriously, of all people, I got tied into. The one guy who entire armies are sent to kill. So the servant does what you and I did. He loses his mind. And in 2 Kings 6, he's going, he wakes up, he sees these armies camped around. He's like, Elisha, we're all going to die. And by all, I mean us, right? Because we are, this is unbelievable. He's losing his mind. What's Elisha doing? Hmm. Hmm. How are you not, how are you not losing your mind, Elisha? What does Elisha do? Praise. Lord. Open his eyes. Remember? Let the veil be lifted for just a moment. Servant goes back outside, looks up, and sees encamped all around them God's warriors, chariots of fire, ready to, I mean, locked and loaded. What's up? Syria? Not a problem for us. Not, a, not really an issue. King of Aram, the Syriites, Naaman, all of them. Bring it. Like, they're ready. They're ready. 
And he goes back inside. Elisha's like, see, there's clearly more of us than them. Right? There's more of us than them. It's just his eyes weren't open. That's what happens to Jacob here. His eyes were open briefly. That's it. Before the dream, that's the dream. To close his response to the dream. It wasn't, what a great dream. How refreshing. Like, now, having met with God, I'm good to go about my business, right? No. What does he say? I'm going to die. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He actually renames the place Bethel, house of God. God was here, and I didn't know it. When I was afraid, I said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What he says, I am... unfortunately awesome this is not the fault of the bible translator the hcsb nailed this that's the correct word awesome the problem is the word awesome now can refer to like you know a a, a piece of pizza or you know um a a particular episode on netflix like like we we have we have dialed down awesome to where it no longer means what it means so the old king james actually gets this one better what uh dreadful the idea of awe I went to the Bronx Zoo yesterday and was reminded of awe because I got to see, and I didn't know it was going to happen. It was kind of one of those things you can't plan, but I was coming around this corner, and the rhinos were moving from one part of their place to the other, and you couldn't tell. This fence was right here, and two rhinos started coming at me like Jumanji, and I'm looking at this going, <laughs> right? I was reminded of what awesome really is. These things are prehistoric, yo. I'm not going to preach on rhinos for just a minute, but what in the world? How does that thing exist? That is on planet. That's real. I saw them. They're bigger than my van. They're unreal. And when they're coming at you, they're just, they're just hanging out. That's just a jog. You're like, uh. I stand before you, rhinos, in awesome, dreadful, dreadful. Uh, but that, that's just rhinos. Imagine being in the presence of God. So he says, this is dreadful. I'm going to die. Uh, uh, when Isaiah saw the, the Lord in the temple, what's the first thing he said? Well, that was refreshing. I'm so glad I caught that vision of God. He says, woe is me, for I am unclean. My whole people are unclean. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. I've seen the Lord. My head's going to explode. That's what everybody happens, right? This is awesome. This is dreadful. Jacob knows. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. Why? This is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of God. Gate of God. Gate of heaven. If I could do it all over again, I would have preached on Genesis chapter 11 before I preached this sermon. But I can't know the future, and I, I missed that one. Oops. Genesis 11 is where we see gate of heaven, gate of God. Do you know what the Hebrew word for gate of God is? Babel. Now, we later change its name. They call it Babylon, which means, it's, you know, Balal is to confuse the language. But gate of God, Babel, Babel. This is the gate of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he brings up the secret of the gate of heaven. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean? Real quick, what does he mean? Remember the Tower of Babel. When we say Tower of Babel, it's a bad translation. We think of the Leaning Tower of Pisa or the Washington Monument or the Empire State Building. That's what we think of Tower, right? For them, when he said, when ba- what they were building in Babel was a ziggurat. This massive pyramid. Why? This huge stairway. Because if we can climb up there, we will get to God. We, we will reach the very gate of God. What's important about a ziggurat? Why does this make such a big deal? When you, when you would, if you were rich enough, and if you were righteous enough, you could get all your sacrifices together, and it would take a lot of money, and it would take a lot of time. You might only get one shot at this in your life, but if you could do all that, and then if you could climb, if you could go to the most important city, 
Then you could go there in, in, let's say, in Ur or in one of the Chaldean cities. You would go in these pagan places. And if you could climb this ziggurat, and if you could climb all the way up, and if you're righteous enough, and your sacrifices were good enough, and you had all your stuff together, and you were really rich, then in there you could go to the very gate of God and you could beseech God. But you had to be a very important person in a very important place, and you had to have a lot of possessions. And here, what's he saying is, this, this is it. God has come to a nowhere place. God has chosen the place. Humans in Babel, they tried to pick the place where they could get to God with all their effort. And Jacob goes, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Here, God has picked the place. God has come to me. God has come to a nowhere place out of sheer grace. And what does it say? It said the Lord, when he spoke to him. Do you remember that verse when the Lord spoke to him? Where did he stand? It said he stood beside him. So God, who has every right to be at the top of the ziggurat, all you know, sitting up there allowing no access, has come down to poor Jacob. Gate of God. Jacob suddenly dawned on him, understood the gate of heaven, the gate of God. Now you tell me, how can a perfectly holy God make his dwelling among sinful men like that? I mean, there's something to be said for God at the top of the ziggurat. Kind of doesn't get his hands dirty, right? But our God has come down. And dwell. How does that happen? And Jacob, Jacob just leaves it in this mysterious place. How can God be perfectly holy and yet come down? And Jacob just praised the Lord for it. He couldn't see the future, but we can see the past. And you and I know the answer, don't we? How could a holy God come and deal with sin and dwell among men? You and I know. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And there's one more place we see the gate of God. And we have to go forward centuries to see it. Some of you know where it is. Some of you have always wondered about this verse. I hope this helps. Um, and so anyway, uh, uh, trying to move quickly. So he, he sets up, he makes this promise, he makes this pledge. And I'll close with this. Last thing. John chapter 1. Jesus is starting to get his ministry going. He's meeting some followers. And they go tell Nathaniel. They're like, Nathaniel, right? Philip tells him, you're not going to believe this. You're going to believe this. We found the Messiah. We found the one. Everything that the word says about him, he's fulfilling these prophecies. And yo, you're not going to believe this. He comes from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Nazareth. That would be like if I told you, uh, the greatest oncologist in the whole country has just been located. This guy has the high, I mean, he, he, he's a genius, and he is able to solve all these things. And all you have to do to get to him, I, I know your friend is going through a terrible disease. There's hope. They found the greatest oncologist in the world. W- where is he based out of? Uh, 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 Johns Hopkins? He's based out of NYU? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's actually um, based out of a little clinic in Possum Trot, Kentucky. Right? You'd be, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you correctly. Yeah, it's Possum Trot. It's a real town, by the way. You can look it up. Yeah, he's in Possum Trot. You kind of got to go, like, you got to walk through his barn, past a meth lab. You'll get, you'll get to him. You just got to commit. You'll totally get there. That's, that's our guy, man. That's him. He's the greatest on college in the world. You would be skeptical. Why? I mean, no offense, but, like, if this guy's really who he says he is, he wouldn't be from Nazareth. He'd be from Jerusalem. He'd be from, like, a legit city or whatever. Philip's like, you know what? Just come and see. So Nathaniel, very skeptical. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said about, come toward him, and he said about him, Now, here's a true Israelite. No deceit is in him. And Nathanael's like, oh, that's funny. That's funny you say that. My friends, my friends always say that. They always say I'm a straight shooter. I say what's on my mind. I'm a little skeptical. That's funny. But it's funny that you would say that. So he asked him. So he says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, okay, this goes way back. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
the very next verse, Rabbi, you were the son of God. You were the king of Israel. Here's the thing. We have no idea what Nathaniel was doing long ago that day under the fig tree. We don't know who he was with. We don't know if he was burying a body. But something must have gone down under the fig tree all those years again to make my man go from Nazareth, what's up? Hey, you remember that day under the fig tree that you thought the the only, I never, I haven't told Philip, I haven't told my wife, that was between me and God and nobody else. And Jesus says, yeah, that day under the fig tree, I know all about that. I'm good. He's the one. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. That's all I needed to hear. Do not expound, Jesus. We're going to keep this, right? You're the one. This gives, <clears throat> gives me chills every time I, every time I, I read it. What's this next? What's, I can't get it to work. Verse 50. Jesus responded, oh, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see greater things than this. This gives me chills. Last verse. He said, I assure you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, his Jewish audience would have known exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about Jacob's ladder. He's talking about Jacob's stairway. And what does Jesus say? You remember the gate of, gate of heaven that Jacob saw? You remember that? You will, see, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He doesn't say you will see the angels ascending and descending to the Son of Man, does he? I make a big deal about this. You don't, he doesn't say, you, you, will see the angel, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending. And you know what? If you get your life together, maybe you can climb. Maybe you can make your way up. No, no, no. He says, I know what Jacob saw. He saw heaven touch earth. And there's no way heaven could ever get to earth. You would need some stairway to get to God. You would see, need some, some way to connect to God. You would need some conduit to connect to God. And that ladder, that stairway, the only hope a human has to get to God, the one the angels were sitting and descending on, it's me. I'm the ladder. I'm the stairway. The angels and descending were on the Son of Man. The, 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 the Son of Man, that's what he calls himself. That's me. I am Jacob's ladder. I'm that place people wanted to go to when they needed to connect with God. They've been going to Babylon. They've been going to Jerusalem. They've been trying all these high and mighty places. They should have come to me because I've come to you. And I can come to an anywhere place. I can come to an anywhere person. People in the middle of nowhere. People who are, the, for your life, the sun has set spiritually on your life. And who shows up? And what's greater than that? That's greater than all his miracles. All the, to me, all the ability he can see in Nathaniel's past. He can see all that stuff. The fact that, that he can be our way to God, the way, the truth, and the life, that it's King Jesus and none other, that what Jacob saw in a vision, we saw in the Bible on Calvary's cross. He can only see it from a distance. We get to celebrate it every week. And now he's alive to invite all who will come, anyone who will come. You no longer have to climb the ladder of God's righteousness. He has made a way to come to us. And so the ushers are going to prepare right for the table and, uh, 
as they do. They're, they're just going to be moving around. Don't even pay any attention to them. Just bow your head. Focus on the Lord. For those of you who are believers, you celebrate this fact. You know it. You know it like the back of your hand. You know it. That when we could not get to God, God has come to us. For those of you who are not believers, it could be there are folks here who are searching all different ways. In Islam, there's a the five pillars that you can follow. These are like steps. In, in Buddhism, it's an, a noble eightfold path they speak of, right? For others, it's, it's ten commandments, or it's a, a set of unwritten rules of secular humanism, like live and let live, or be nice to others as, as well as you can in your human effort, so forth and so on. These are all steps to get to God. But the communion table stands in stark contrast to all of that. Christianity radically different in this sense and all these other attempts their attempt man's attempt to get to God in Christianity it's God's attempt to get to man and our faith rests in what God has done not in what we can do to climb any ladder because he is the way and putting our faith and trust in Jesus he is the way he's not a way to God he's not a, he's not an example we follow he's a living lord who is right now our connection to God with his blood he made peace between we we had nothing in God but an enemy before Christ and he made peace and reconciliation and it wasn't God's fault no we hated him we rebelled against him in our sin but with his own blood on the cross Jesus can make us righteous before holy God and so father we pray as we come to the table we pray oh God that we would remember we come at your invitation For all those here who feel that they're in a a nowhere place, I pray, oh God, you would speak specially to them. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread. After he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, given for you. He says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I would ask you to search your heart and ponder and meditate on the good news we've heard today. The ushers will no doubt move around to get us in position, and they'll tell us uh, when to come forward. They know how to do that. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.